Martin Luther described the Psalms in a phrase that I've loved for many years. He said the Psalms, while not the length of the whole Bible, the Psalms are a mini Bible. They're a mini Bible. Because in the book of Psalms, you have all the major doctrines of Scripture taught. Here's what he means. The Psalms teach us about God. We learn that God is trustworthy when we read the Psalms. That He is holy and righteous. That He is sovereign and powerful. That He's everlasting and faithful. That He is loving and worthy of worship. He's the creator and sustainer of all things in the echoes of His glory fill creation. The Psalms teach us about God. The Psalms teach us about mankind. We learn that we are made in the image of God. From the Psalms, we see that we've been made to exercise dominion over God's creation, but we have gone astray. We've rebelled. And we are corrupt and sinful inwardly and outwardly. And groups of sinners called societies are characterized by acts of injustice and lack of love. We need salvation. We learn this from the Psalms. We need forgiveness. The Psalms teach us about mankind. The Psalms teach us about the Messiah. There is a coming king. A king who will reign over the nations with a rod of iron. This king is the son of David and he will receive an everlasting throne. He is the son of God. The hope of the people of God. And he will suffer and he will die and he will rise and he will ascend. The Psalms teach us about the Messiah. They teach us about salvation There is no salvation to be found in chariots or spears or horsemen or political power. Salvation is from the Lord. When God saves sinners, He forgives their sins and He counts righteousness to them through faith. God is their refuge and their rock. And He pulls them from the mire and the water that flooded over them. He snatches them from Sheol and He rescues them from darkness. And He overcomes their enemies and He pours out His mercies. The Psalms teach us about salvation. We learn about Christian living from the Psalms. We need a delight in the Word. We need to pray in all circumstances. We need to seek the Lord because we will face affliction and we will face hardship, but we will never be forsaken. The Psalms teach us this. God is our refuge, our ever-present help. His face is toward us. His ear is inclined to our prayer. So in the face of uncertainty and sickness and suffering and death, we wait upon the Lord. The Psalms teach us how to live As Christians. Lastly the Psalms teach us about the end of all things. The wicked will be overcome. And the justice of God. Will flood creation from one corner to the other. The righteous will be vindicated. The dead will be raised. The corruption of sin and death will succumb to the power of God. Bringing glory to his world. And we shall dwell with God. And he shall dwell with us. And all that we were made to be, we shall be. And all that we've been made to receive, we shall receive. All that God has made us for. The Psalms are a mini Bible, aren't they? Luther's right. By studying them and by looking at these ancient prayers and songs, these Psalms teach us about God and what it is to walk with God. We started this journey in book one of the Psalms in January. So for these 11 months, we've brought 
ourselves from Psalms 1 to 41 through the book of Psalms, book 1. In nearly every case, there's been a superscription above verse 1 that claims Davidic authorship. That's the same thing today. Right above verse 1, you see the familiar words to the choir master, a psalm of David. Once again, here's the king of Israel writing from some set of circumstances. What do we know about these circumstances from which David writes? Well, they're bleak, as many of the psalms in book 1 are. The overwhelming majority of the psalms involve David calling out to God in lament, out of his affliction and hardship, looking to God, come what may. And David is again teaching us this. It seems that he is ill, and it seems that he is surrounded by enemies. You get this from the language of Psalm 41. People plotting against him, his own sins overwhelming him. And what must David do? David does what we must do in any and all circumstances. And that is he turns to God in confidence and prayer. In verses 1 to 3, let's look at the psalmist's confidence. Verses 1 to 3, the psalmist's confidence. In verses 4 through 10, the psalmist's situation. And then verses 11 and 12 the psalmist's confidence once again. Verse 13 ends the whole book, book 1, not just Psalm 41. We'll look at that as well. But the psalmist's confidence, then his situation, and then his confidence again. When he's going to describe what he's going through in verses 4 to 10, it is surrounded by a confident prayer in the Lord. Not just prayer, the noun, but a person. A prayer, one who calls out to God. That confidence frames his circumstances. Oh, may it frame ours. David has much to teach. In verses 1 to 3, here's how his confidence sounds. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He's called blessed in the land. You don't give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. Now, at first... David is talking what feels like non-personally, impersonally. David is talking about the one who considers the poor. That person would be a righteous person. The wicked do not consider the poor. At least they don't consider the poor for anything other than those to be exploited and uh, prevailed upon. David is talking about a righteous person who considers the poor in a way where here are the defenseless or the vulnerable and the, the righteous want to act on their behalf and act with love toward neighbor. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Blessed by God, that is. He is talking here about someone who walks with God and loves neighbor. And that person is blessed of God. Now, the word blessed is the first word of this psalm. And the word blessed was the first word of the whole book of Psalms in Psalm 1. So what's interesting about the first Psalm in book 1 and the last Psalm in book 1 is they both begin with a pronouncement of the favor and blessing of God upon His people. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. You know, in Psalm 1, the righteous was the one who delights in the law of God. He doesn't walk according to the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And when the law of God, when His Word is heard, internalized, and walked in conformity to, here is one 
aspect or manifestation of that internalization of the law. A love rightly oriented toward others. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Well, if the righteous considers the poor, what about the wicked? Well, the wicked just want to exploit others. They just want to take advantage. They see someone in a situation and they say, here's how I can work this for my benefit. And at their expense, the righteous one does not think this way. He considers the poor and he acts accordingly. And blessed is such a one, which means God's favor and flourishing power is upon this person both now and in the future. In fact, the day of trouble will come for the righteous. And in the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Now we might say, well, I wish that there would be no day of trouble for the righteous. But that's not what the Psalms teach us at all, is it? In fact, the day of trouble comes. The day of trouble takes all shapes and forms. In verse 2, for instance, he's surrounded by enemies. At the end of verse 2, you don't give him up to the will of his enemies, he says. In verse 3, there's an example of physical affliction and suffering and sickness. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. So what could the day of trouble look like? Well, it could look like trouble outside of you. It could like, look like trouble inside of you. It could look like trouble that is social and relational. It could look like bodily and spiritual affliction. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. So what is one way in which the blessing of God is experienced by his people? The power of God works for the good of his people. In the day of trouble... We trust the Lord for deliverance, even deliverance through death, that God himself bringing deliverance to his people is an example of his blessing that the righteous can, that the the wicked rather cannot count on. Almost said the righteous can't count on. That's not true. The wicked can't count on it, but the righteous know that in the day of trouble, God is God over them. And that's great news for the righteous. And it is disaster for the wicked. In verse two, the Lord protects him. So the deliverance in verse 1 is is coupled with this idea of protection and sustaining of life in verse 2. Protects him and keeps him alive. When the people in the land look at those who walk in obedience to God and God's will is for their flourishing and God's plan and power protects them and guides them and upholds them, the land calls them blessed. He's called blessed in the land. This isn't talking about the Lord being called blessed, but the one who follows God. That's a blessed woman. That's a blessed man. You, he says to God, do not give him up to the will of his enemies. It is God's will that prevails, not the will of the wicked that seek to reign supreme over God. They cannot. They are no ultimate rival to him. So he is confident in verses 1 to 3 of God's blessing upon God's people. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. And then in verse 3, the Lord sustains him, this righteous one, on his sickbed. Now you might say, I would rather the righteous never see affliction, never see a day of trouble, never uh, experience physical ailment. But we know differently from the word of God about life in a fallen world, don't we? So here he is facing enemies in verse 2. Here he is bodily affliction in verse 3. Where is his hope found? His hope is found in God. The Lord, the one who blesses his people, the one whose favor is upon the righteous. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. This is not to say he would never die. It is to say that until death, the Lord's blessing upon his people is experienced in manifold ways, such as deliverance from the plots of others. 
and even threats to one's physical well-being and health. Time and time again, can't we recognize, even as we sit in this room today, the Lord delivering us from things outside of us and inside of us? This does not mean our day of death is not in front of us. We shall surely die. And yet, in verses 1 to 3, the psalmist's confidence is expressed to shape the situation he's in. Verses 1 to 3, the psalmist's confidence. Let's look at his situation. Because prior to this, he's been talking about God blessing the righteous. About sustaining the sick. About delivering those who are being plotted against by antagonists all around. Well, in verses 4 to 10, it turns out the psalmist is in such a situation. So here's the confidence of the psalmist. God, I know how you are toward your people. And I am one. I am your people. I belong to the people of God. And I know how you are toward those who are facing affliction. And how you sustain and preserve. How you deliver. And so, Lord, let me tell you about my situation. Uh, Let me tell you what I'm in so that you, O Lord, knowing the God that you are toward your people, shall be that toward me in my hour of need. The confidence of the psalmist is followed in verses 4 to 10 by a description of his situation. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. We could summarize verses 1 to 3 by saying David believes God is gracious toward his people. So David is saying, I need you to be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Do you see the connection between verses 3 and 4? The confidence of the psalmist and then his own personal situation? He needs the graciousness of the Lord, the countenance of the power of God upon him. He needs the hand of God to bring restoration and healing. And David knows that part of what he is experiencing are consequences for his iniquity. You can't always connect someone's experience of circumstances and sin or circumstances and sickness to some kind of sin or rebellion. David, however, does rightly discern that in his circumstances, what he's facing has to do with what he has done. He says in verse four, heal me for I have sinned against you. Now, David's experience of spiritual iniquity and rebellion, the sin against the Lord, that's what he brings up here, but that's not the entirety of the situation. When it rains, it pours, they say, right? So here it is. David is dealing with his own sin, and he says in verse 5, my enemies say of me in malice. Okay, so now we realize The context of Psalm 41 is David praying out of circumstances where he needs the restoring power of God upon his body and he needs the delivering power of God from some sort of entrapment. He has enemies. No one looks for this. No one is eager to follow God and accrue enemies along the way. And yet the seed of the serpent works with hostility and malice against the seed of the woman from Genesis forward. In other words, we recognize that those who hate God would naturally also have vitriol for the people of God. And here David here, David loves God and the wicked hate God and they hate David. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Isn't that a heartbreaking question? They are looking with bated breath. All right, they can't. They're like, when's this going to happen? And they're just looking the clock. Now? Is it today? Is it going to be tomorrow? 
They want to know when. When will he die? Now, David is praying, Lord, when, you, when will you deliver? Okay, we're, I, Lord, need your, your work. The, the enemies are not praying for David. They want to hasten his destruction as soon as possible. They say in malice, which means their motive, their heart is on display in verse 5. What's their heart like? Their heart is hostile toward him. The enemies do not want what is for David's good. They just want him to die. When will he die and his name perish? They're pictured like, like vultures just waiting for the opportune moment. Is it now? Is it now? Will it be soon? David is surrounded by people who seem to interact with him at some level. Do you see in verse 6 when it says, When one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. These are people who are not what they seem. They might come to David, and they've got words for David, and maybe it's words that sound like, hey David, I'm praying for you, hoping you're recovering. And then on their way out, they mean nothing of the sort. They mean nothing of the sort. They want his demise. So someone comes to see David, and they've got, they've got words that they say. They don't mean any of those words. Those words are empty. Those words are weightless. When one comes to see me, he utters empty words. What's on the inside, behind? It's, it's hypocrisy, deception, manipulation, gathering iniquity. I think that must mean they're plotting. They're plotting internally. They're plotting with others verbally. They're trying to get the better of David. They don't want to see the weak made strong. They want to see the strong made weak and the weak made dead. That's what they want. That's their plan. And they're gathering iniquity. That's what's in their heart and in their minds with others. When he goes out in verse 6, meaning the, the deceptive hypocritical one, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. Oh, the righteous one, oh David, oh mighty King David, he's on his deathbed. It won't be much longer. And then we will have our way. His name will perish. They would love to see the death of a king that could open up some kind of power vacancy. Some kind of political gap which they can look at. Now David leaves it and they can seize it. Oh, what it would mean for them. They long for it. So these people are going out and they are spreading news of David's demise. And they are singing it and they are praising it. They can't wait. In verse 7, all who hate me whisper about me. They imagine the worst for me. This is the, the, a, a sad situation of David knowing people who do not want what is best and good for him. They see David's situation as something that if it continued down this road, we can see how it would really benefit us if he is gone. So they're whispering and they're gathering and they're conspiring and they want the worst. They're not imagining a turn of events. They're not hoping and praying to the Lord for his restoration. They want the worst for David. These are anti-God people and anti-neighbor people. They want the worst. Part of what their words say in verse 8, they say a deadly thing is poured out on him. I think that's a poetic way of talking about David is in a situation, it's like affliction in a bottle has just been poured upon David and is affecting him. I don't take that to mean someone came to David and actually poured something upon him. I think it's a figure of speech. But it's a deadly thing. Whatever has been poured into David's life, whatever is affecting his body and emotions, whatever has laid him out, is a deadly thing, they say. And if it's a deadly thing, then if it works the way it should, then David will die. That's being poured out. In fact, they are confident. 
that there's no reversal. He will not rise again from where he lies. So you're picturing David here. He's on a bed. He's horizontal. He's afflicted. And maybe people are coming to visit. They're coming in and they're saying, oh, we're here, we're here to see the king. We're here to see King David. Maybe these are people in his administration who would have easy access to the king. Oh, yeah, we just want to see how David's doing. But in the hallways and in their own rooms, they are celebrating the decline of God's king. He won't rise again from where he lies. One of the reasons I'm saying that the enemies could be people close to David's own administration is because of what verse 9 says. Look carefully at verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. There it is. So you know what these enemies aren't? Enemies that have nothing to do with David's administration or close circles. You know what these enemies include? People David trusted. Doesn't that make you think of something in the New Testament? So here's David, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. Now, why does, why does he include that little phrase, who ate my bread? Because it was unthinkable that people you shared table fellowship with would betray you. To, in the ancient Near East, to have a setting of hospitality and people were brought to your table and you were on the, the mats and you were reclining together over food and drink. You were sharing about life and celebrating the moment. It was, it was festive and it was bonding and, and yet in David's case, it could be laced with betrayal in the works. That's what was happening. My close friend, this isn't even an acquaintance of David. This isn't like someone in the periphery of his administration. David says, oh, this person was in the inner ring. This was a close friend, and I trusted this person. They ate my bread. You know how many people didn't eat the bread of the king with the king? Most people. Okay, like, like most people who ever lived in the kingdom of Israel would never be at the table of the king. Oh, to be at the table of the king, and to have the menu of the king, and to eat the bread of the king, must mean you are of such a status with the king in terms of friendship and trust that you would have access to such a table. But in verse 9, this person in whom I trusted, David says, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Lifted his heel is a picture of rejection. It may even go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, where the serpent would be crushed by the future seed of the woman who would, with his heel, defeat the serpent... And in a cruel and mischievous reversal, the enemy's heel is lifted up against David, ready to put his foot on the king's neck or upon his head. Not just to reject him like a kicking up dust, which could also be an ancient or eastern picture in view. Lifting up the heel could be to kick dust backward, to lift up the heel in rejection. But it may mean like a victor over a defeated foe to lift up one's heel over to crush, to pin down. My close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, lifted up his heel against me. It is such a vivid and heart-rending picture of betrayal. It can be stomach-turning. And it makes us think of the New Testament. Think of the Lord Jesus. How many people ate the Last Supper with the Lord Jesus on the night before He was crucified? Most people didn't. 
A very select few, a a group of 12 disciples. They're eating bread at a table, reclining together. And Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, speaks on this night of the Last Supper that there is one here at this table, the one who's dipping this bread with me, who will betray me. And I want you to hear, not from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's a paraphrase. I want you to hear from John 13. In John 13, 14, these are the words of Jesus. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. So the setting in John 13 was the foot washing, which took place at the Last Supper. And he says, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I've given you an example That you should also do what I've done to you. And truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, Jesus says. And then Jesus says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Now, Jesus said in John 13, 18, the scripture will be fulfilled. And what does Jesus quote from Psalm 41? He quotes Psalm 41, verse 9, which was about suffering David betrayed by a close confidant And you didn't get any closer than the 12 disciples were. Walking with Jesus, as one Puritan said, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons and plotted to betray him. Turned against him, lifted up his heel against him, one who shared my bread. How does Jesus read the Psalms? Think about how instructive John 13 is for us of how the New Testament interprets the old. Jesus is talking about his own future betrayal. And he says the scripture will be fulfilled. Leading us to conclude that the pattern of David's suffering and resurrection forms a pattern requiring fulfillment of a greater David, a son of David. Meaning that David's own historical experience of suffering was in the providence of God preparing a way for one greater than David who would experience what David did. Suffering and betrayal. So much so was this pattern important for the Messiah's role that Jesus looks at that pattern as a promise. That pattern is so firm and so consistent and so sure that Jesus can say it's going to be fulfilled. You say, well, didn't David fulfill it? You see, David's life formed the pattern. And Jesus' life formed the fulfillment of that pattern. And in John 13, 18, Jesus said the scripture will be fulfilled. And he doesn't tell you he's quoting from Psalms. But it's only found in Psalm 41, 9. That's the passage. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And Jesus says, I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it takes place, you'll believe that I am he. And they're going to leave that last supper. They're going to sing a hymn together. They're going to go to the Mount of, uh, to uh, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas, who had earlier left them, will arrive with those coming to arrest Jesus. And he will give the Son of Man a kiss upon the cheek, saying, the one I kiss, he is the one, sees him. And Jesus sees Judas coming and says, my betrayer is at hand. Rise, let us go.
all of that fulfilling the earlier pattern of Psalm 41. Now that is a suffering betrayal pattern. And in verse 10 of our psalm this morning, listen to David's statement next. After that language of this one who is my close friend eating my bread and lifting up his heel, he says, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. What does verse 10 imply? Verse 10 implies the foiling of the plots of the adversaries. Because they said, do you remember the earlier words? The psalm wants you to keep them clear. He says earlier in verse uh, 5, when will he die, they say, in his name perish. And then they say in verse 9, a deadly thing is poured out. He will not rise again. He will not rise again. David prays, Lord, raise me up. Because they're saying he's going nowhere. He's saying, God, I need you to bring me up. You, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. David's view of graciousness here looks like deliverance. That's the way it would work out. If he says, God, be gracious to me. What would that look like for David? For David to say, thank you, Lord, that was graciousness. It looks like deliverance in this case. Mercy. It looks like God's sparing David from the plots of the enemies. So they say he won't rise again. He says to God, Lord, raise me up that I may repay them. Now that sounds rather vengeful. And I understand that last line in verse 10 might raise an eyebrow thinking that I may repay them. Oh my, what is David getting at? Consider as the king of Israel, the enemies have risen against David, not in a way where he's trying to um, mete out some personal vengeance but rather establish justice in his kingdom that is being threatened by the enemies of the king. And the enemies of Israel in the days of David would be the enemies of Yahweh, who is committed with steadfast love to David and his descendants, ultimately to the Lord Christ. But you, O Lord, be gracious. Raise me up that I may repay them. This is David's way of saying, Lord, they're trying to act with injustice. And I want you to bring justice. They are defying you, Lord, in their unrighteous plots. I want you to foil that. Raise me up that we will establish righteousness over them. And that the snares they prepared for me would catch their own feet. They've lifted up their heels. We need those heels to get caught up in the same trap. So in verse 10, it's David's prayer in light of this described circumstance. We've seen the confidence of David in verses 1 to 3. We've seen David's condition or his situation in verses 4 to 10 where he's personalized his own confidence saying, raise me up, deliver me, Lord. And it's followed again in verses 11 and 12 with more confidence. I said in the beginning of the message that the confidence of David frames the situation. Let's see in verses 11 and 12 his words. By this, I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Rewording this, here's what we would be thinking in light of line two. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. The opposite of that would be the enemies celebrating David's defeat. They would have won. My enemy will not shout in triumph means the enemy fails and David is vindicated. The enemy's plots are unraveling and David is raised up once more. And here's David's whole line again in verse 11. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph. This, how confident is this? David's confidence looks like him saying to the Lord, Lord, I know you are, you are for me. Your steadfast love, unwavering. The enemies against you, they shall not succeed against you. 
They will not shout in triumph. You will show your delight in your people by delivering them. By delivering them. The delivering grace of God at work in us and through us demonstrates the love of God toward us in the new covenant that we find in His Son. God's delight in His Son and His delight in the people of the Son. God's delight in the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised King. David here is a shadow, a type of a coming King. How true it is for the Lord Jesus to be able to say, By this I know you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. The third day happened. A stone was rolled away. That happened. An empty tomb happened. And therefore the triumph of Christ over the alleged triumph of the enemies at first. Their shouts were silenced by the living Christ. The delight of God in the King who is Jesus and the delight in the people of God who are the people of Jesus. We trust the Lord's deliverance. It demonstrates His love toward us, that He is for us and not against us, inclined toward us and not forsaking us. David says in verse 12, But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. A series of psalms we have noticed in Psalm 38, 39, 40, and 41. Four psalms in a row. David has made mention of his iniquities. And in these, he has acknowledged them in a form that we could say is like confession unto God, a turning to God. It demonstrates integrity, turning from folly to wisdom. Looking to God, though we had turned once against him in our foolishness, Trusting God as our refuge and deliverer. This, this honors the Lord. This is for the good of our souls. And in verse 12, he says, you have upheld me. When we sing, he will hold me fast. David said it first. In other words, David recognizes who upholds us as the people of God. God does. You upheld me. And not only does does David experience the upholding power of God, where does God place David? This is an important part of verse 12. Maybe the most important part of the entire psalm. David is not just looking to rise from bed. That would indicate that he's getting better, that the Lord has prevailed over the sickness. The end of verse 12 says, You have set me in your presence forever. What is it that David most needs? Most needs? What does David most need? (laughs) What does David most desire? And the longings manifested in the future of the blessing and favor of God. It is to be with God above all. It is not just that his enemies would fail. It is not just that his sickness would be healed. It is not just that his sins would be forgiven. All of those things aiming toward what? That David would dwell with God. The people who want to walk with and dwell with God shall dwell with God forever. Those who do not want God shall not have Him. They will reap what they sow. But David wants the Lord. David wants to know God and to be blessed of God and to turn to God. And here's what he knows. The future for the people of God is the presence of God forevermore. And there's nothing greater than this. This is the end goal. This is not a means to an end. You might say, well, in the presence of the Lord forever, so that. There is no so that. The presence of the Lord is the end goal. All of the other things are the so that we might dwell in the presence of the Lord. And not temporarily. 
but forever. That our everlasting life could rightly be called that because of our union in the presence of God by His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus. Friends, we were made for this. To know God in a way that looks like everlasting life with God. That's what David is talking about. Don't you want this? Don't you want God to bless you in such a way that you would be set in His presence forever? There's no hope for this outside Christ. There's only Christ, the beloved Son, whose integrity ensures that all in Him are upheld, whose triumph over His enemies ensures that the delight of the Father and the Son would be ours in the Son. We will be set in the presence of God forever through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way. So don't you want this? Therefore, don't you want Christ? The beloved son who's died on a cross and risen from the dead. The Psalms teach these things. Shadows and patterns of the life of David that are fulfilled in Jesus. He had the close friend with whom he ate the bread. Lift up his heel against him so that it all might be fulfilled. That that betrayal would lead to an arrest. Those arrests to shams of trials. And then a condemnation on a cross. That on that cross in the middle. Those including Those mocking and scorning, even the centurion, surely this man is the son of God, that on that cross, our iniquities might be borne by him. The one who is the greater David, suffering not for his own sins, but for ours, becoming sin for us, that he might rise. And on the third day, inaugurate a new creation by putting on imperishability. A resurrection life and glory for which we were made. We shall be in the presence of the Lord forever. And our presence in the Lord forever is not disembodied. Though we die, we shall rise. The enemies may say of us, like in verse 8. He will not rise again from where he lies. But the Bible tells us differently. The Bible says of every tomb that there is. They shall rise. And at the power of God, death shall be defeated. The shout of triumph will be of the people of God rejoicing in their deliverer. Verse 13 is the end of this psalm. But it is more than that. Verse 13 is the end of book one. Each of the books, there are five books in Psalms. Book 1, Psalms 1 to 41, ends this way. Every other book, book 2, 3, 4, and 5, all end with some way of giving praise and amening the glory of God. They don't all do it the exact same way, but that's the, the common denominator among all of them. And here at the end of book 1, blessed be Yahweh, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. It brings to a conclusion, not only Psalm 41, but all the Psalms from 1 to 41. That this is a capstone in book 1. A a blessing unto God. Now what does it mean, blessed be the Lord? It's a statement of praise. That God be seen as exalted and worthy. That He be seen as blessed and be lifted up by His people. It's a call for worship. That He ought to be blessed and and that He ought to be recognized as exalted and lifted up. And this is what His people's response should be. David is responding. Blessed be the Lord. This is David's response to who God is. It must be ours. It must be our response. David is teaching us how to pray and respond to the Lord for who He is. God, being the God of Israel, being everlasting from everlasting, He is to be praised. 
Everlasting to everlasting describes not only God, but how long he is worthy of blessing. From everlasting to everlasting. When God stops being God, he will then become unworthy. But since that will never be, God from everlasting to everlasting shall always be the one worthy of all blessing and honor and praise. The end of verse 41 Amen and amen. A double amen. Well, I love a single amen. I love a double amen. This is a double amen. Amen and amen. It is such an emphasis of confirmation. David writes to the choir master a psalm of David in the superscription. And then he gives them what to say. So that at the very end, they would acknowledge that God is to be praised. For God is from everlasting to everlasting. And that everybody rejoice with that double confirmation. Amen and amen. Let's try that together. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray.